0: Would you open your Bible tonight to Psalms 15? Psalms 15. Now, for lack of a more clever title, just as a common title tonight, I'd like to talk about the unmovable saints, because that's what God says we should be, unmovable saints. In fact, not only should we be, as Peter writes, steadfast and unmovable, but we should also triumph in this life and be above and not beneath the head and not the tail. We should be blessed as we go out and blessed as we come in. The world has a different way of describing life than we do. The world says nothing is certain, nothing is absolute. You never know, you know, as concerning God. He could, he has, he might, but you never know if he will. But we don't read that in the scripture, so we have to make Firm, those kind of words. We don't want to walk through life uncertain, not established or sure about what we're believing. Because if you're not sure about what you're believing, you're not believing anything. But God has given us an eternal truth, his word. As I've said before, it is a fact of all facts. A fact is that which has reality. And we have that before us tonight. It is certain it is forever settled in heaven, and if God said it, he'll do it. If he spoke it, he'll make it good. Now, this is what we base our life on. This is not something we hope works or some good moral code that we ought to try to live by, but this is the way God describes it, we ought to live. Now, with regards to faith, in years gone by, I think a lot of people consider themselves to have faith in God or be walking the way they should if they threw away all their crutches and helps and aids and glasses and pill whatever it was. And yet so many of them proved to be so hard to get along with that there was something lacking in their character. They were certainly good at triumphing over certain things, but they were so difficult to get along with or be friends with. They found fault in everything you did, and it was just difficult. I don't know if they ever read the 15th Psalm before, but let's read in that 15th Psalm the last verse, verse 5. In fact, let's read the last sentence in the last verse where it says that he that doeth these things shall never be moved. Now, would you like that to be your testimony? Not just the verse you've memorized and the verse that you have in your understanding of Scripture, but wouldn't you like for that to be a reality in your life? That no matter what comes your way as you get up and go through life every day, that nothing can defeat you, nothing can throw you, really throw you off course. You're challenged, of course, but you're never moved. You're never thrown off course. You never stumble and fall away. The righteous man may stumble through this life. But God will rescue you because he that started a good work, he'll finish it. And so we want to read tonight about some of the characteristics of these faithful people that God is bringing into his kingdom. Those who are being trained as citizens of the kingdom of God. Ways that they're described by the Lord, plus the ways that God said, if you will do this, then this verse 5 will happen. You will not be moved. Well, Lord, show me what it is that I can do that I will not be moved. Well, verse 1. Actually, there's 10 or 11 things here, but let's just read through this psalm. Lord, who shall abide in thy tabernacle and who shall dwell in thy holy hill? Now, those are figures of speech. You know you have to get up and go to work. You can't just stay in a church house, but that's not what he's talking about. It's talking about relationship how you relate to God in a vital and important way. And he said, "'Who shall abide in thy tabernacle? "'Who shall dwell in thy holy hill?' "'Then he describes the person who will. "'He that walketh uprightly, and worketh righteousness, "'and speaketh the truth in his heart. "'He that backbiteth not with his tongue, "'nor doeth evil to his neighbor, "'nor taketh up reproach against his neighbor.' in whose eyes a vile person is contemned or despised. But he honoreth them that fear the Lord. He that sweareth to his own hurt and changeth not. He that putteth not out his money to usury or interest, nor he that taketh reward against the innocent. Now he that doeth these things, your Bible says, shall not be moved. Now, if you want to be steadfast, if you want to be a pastor's delight, one of those trouble-free kind of people, one who is an aid and not a problem, here's a good place to start. Now, the Bible not only says that here, but it says things like this many places. I just picked this one out. In fact, I'd like you to go to the right a little bit and look in Isaiah chapter 33. We'll come back to this psalm, so don't lose your place. So, Isaiah 33. Verses 14 and 15 and 16. Verse 14, the sinners in Zion are afraid. Fearfulness has to surprise the hypocrites. Who among us shall dwell with a devouring fire? Who among us shall dwell with everlasting burnings? They didn't know who they were dealing with. God is a consuming fire among other things something that is awesome and terrifying unless you're walking as you should walk. So he says prior to their coming difficulty, he said, who in the world amongst you will be able to dwell with such? And then he tells you in verse 15, he says, this is the one who will. And again, he that walketh righteously and speaketh uprightly, he that despiseth the gain of oppressions, that shaketh his hands from holding of bribes, that stoppeth his ears from the hearing of blood, that shutteth his eyes from some bad stuff on the TV. Uh, I'm sorry. Uh, He he that shutteth his eyes from seeing evil, he shall dwell on high. Well, that's who's going to dwell with the Lord. These are specifically singled out and stated. These characteristics are the characteristics of God's people who will relate to him and he to them they're very simple things there's nothing difficult here if you were looking for something really deep this is pretty deep when you realize how many people ignore this but it said he shall dwell on high his palace of defense shall be the minimum of the rocks and so forth but the point is he shall dwell on high This is what we want. This is what we can have. This is what we can do. There's nothing that can prevent us from living on God's terms, and these are his terms. And living on God's terms is what Christianity is anyway. It's living the way God wants us to live. And he said again, if you look in Psalm 65, if you go back towards the Psalms in verse 4, Psalm 65 and 4, Blessed is the man whom you choose. Let me ask you all a little bit of a theological question. Did you choose God to be your God, or did God choose you to be his child? Who did the choosing? God did. So it wasn't some time in your life and you really got tore up about things, you thought you'd just try to get saved. And this was all of God's doings. Amen. He said, you did not choose me, Jesus said, but I chose you and ordained you. Now, here in Psalm 65 and verse 4, again, he says, Blessed is the man whom you chooseth and causeth to approach unto thee, that he may dwell in thy course. Let me ask you another simple question. We had a test tonight, one verse of Scripture, looking for one answer. How is it that anybody will ever be able to dwell with God? They must be invited, must they not? God must initiate the bringing forth and the placing before him. What did he say about the miry clay? Remember something in the Bible about miry clay? He brought us up out of the miry clay and established our goings or something, put a new song on the mouth. Isn't there something in the Bible like that? But we were all, all of mankind is stuck in a miry clay in the systems of man, in the ways of this world. He's acclimated to it. He's bound to it, the Bible teaches. He is ruled by it. And the only escape from this bondage of the world is an act of God whereby he calls you out of darkness or out of that miry clay into his marvelous light. And unless he does, you can't make it. You won't come. You can get convicted about a lot of things, but only God can save people salvation is always of god somebody said well you sound like a calvinist well, i might be a little bit but that's okay if that's what they mean so be it he goes on to say blesses man whom you choose and cause to approach unto you that he may dwell in thy courts that's fellowship and that's what a relationship is it's dwelling with god it's not a visit I'm not talking about visitation here's talking about living dwelling that he may dwell in thy courts. We shall be satisfied with the goodness of thy house, even of thy holy temple. He said, we shall be satisfied with the goodness of his house. You think of God's house. He, My God shall supply all your need according to his riches and glory. And that place of supply, Malachi talks about, he shall raise the windows of heaven. I guess that's his dwelling place and pour out upon you a blessing. So we're talking about something that's over our head here unless God opens our eyes to see what he is saying. He said, I'm causing people to come to me. I'm choosing you. You didn't choose me. I chose you, brought you out of that deadness you were in and brought you here. And for the last 31 years, I've been teaching you, talking to you. Now, sometimes we get bored, we get a little different. You know, it's Wednesday night and all that. But he said, don't misunderstand. God doesn't bring us here to bore us. Now, the preacher can, but God wouldn't. And if you pray, there'll be something that you'll hear that God sent specially just for you. Something that'll either encourage you, edify you, quicken you, make you more confident, more sure and steadfast, or something you've never known before that'll make you glad. But God never brings us here to bore us. He brings us together to inform us something that we need in our life. And what he gives us, man shall not live by bread alone, but he lives by this word. You never take that light. This word is a treasure. This word is something that men have sought, walked many miles to hear in certain places in the world, sold a lot of things to move where the word is. Some of you did. And so it's very special and it's an important thing for us to hear the word. But the point of it is, the benefit that we're hearing here is that one, God brings us to him, puts us in a place where we can relate to him and hear his voice. And then he begins to bless us in that environment so that we have a testimony. Our light begins to shine. Others can see something good happening to us. We're profiting from something if we're believing And we're not the same person we used to be because we are in a different place than we once were, and it's obvious that we're blessed more. If nothing more than peace and joy in your life, in a troubled world full of turmoil, God blesses you. You got a smile on your face. It bothers people, but it blesses you. What is it about you? And he said, be ready always. Did he say that? That's still in the Bible, isn't it? Be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is within you this is who we are, but we can only be this because he does what he does. And we're beginning to explore more and more that once he called us to him, he doesn't just say, now sit in church and be a good member. Like I grew up in the Christian church. You just went to church. That's all I ever did. You went to church with my dad in the Catholic church. We just went to one or the other and just went through the motions of formality. We just did what the system told us to do and never meant anything when I got saved begin to hear the word and search for it myself, it began to have great meaning. There was more to it. The songs were different. He's all I need. I think, man, is he really? I mean, he is, but do I really treat him like that? No, the first sign of trouble in my life, I run to somewhere else. I don't know about trusting God with all my heart. Is that in the Bible? Then the challenge, I think, Lord, who can live like this? Who can live on this level? He said, nobody can live that way without the Lord's help. But when you yield yourself to God, all things are possible. Because didn't Peter say, who can be saved? What did Jesus say with man? It is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. It just depends on the level of your commitment to God and your desire for what he has to come into your life. And the more you desire that, listen, the more he rewards you for that desire. Go back to Psalm 24. We're heading back to Psalm 15, but we'll stop off at Psalms 24. That's a good place there to stop. Psalms 24, the question was asked concerning this dwelling with the Lord and this relationship with the Lord in verse 3. Who shall ascend into the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in his holy place? Isn't that what he wants us to have? And what does he say? He that has been baptized and has church membership somewhere and he that puts money in the offering container? What does he say? Who shall ascend? To the hill of the Lord. And who shall stand in his holy place? He that hath clean hands. hands. I doesn't mean you wash them good. Clean hands and a pure heart. You kept your hands out of things that God will judge. Clean hands and a pure heart. This is the man that is going to dwell with the Lord. And then go back again to Psalm 15 where we started. Because he says that a reconciled sinner will evidence in his or her relationship with God, there's certain indefinite ways they're going to manifest the character of God in their life. Remember what Job said? Acquaint now thyself with him and be at peace. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me. This is what God wants. This is the process that Christians go through when God saves us. And he brings us to the end, we'll receive the end of our faith, the saving of our souls, working out our salvation, all this change, from glory to glory to glory, the being conformed to the image of Christ. All of this is what's happening right now, and he does it through His word in believers. Hearers, not much. But hearing and doing, life gets richer and sweeter. It gets better and better used to sing a song like that, every day with Jesus is tougher than the day before. No, it says it's sweeter. And you know what? That's not in the Bible like that. And I don't know that songs are anointed like anything else that God's ever said, but there's truth to those words. Every day with Jesus, what he say is new every morning. Didn't he say something in the Bible or new every day? Well, there's something that's supposed to be a progressive, living, joyful, growing life, growing up into him in most things, all things, thank you, the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, his faith, his righteousness, his joy, his peace, all these things he's given to us. And these are the things that should characterize us. You cannot go to a doctor or throw away your pills. You can do all those kind of things you want to, but if you leave this out, you're going to wind up like a clanging cymbal and just a lot of noise that irritates a lot of people. But you be a gentle and kind, loving person. You irritate nobody except people that live irritable. But this is the way it's supposed to be. Now let's go back to Psalm 15 and look at these one at a time because that's what I want to do tonight. I'm not going to labor or spend a lot of time on each point, but I want to point them out and for you to think about it. Number one in Psalm 15, he says, Who shall abide and who shall dwell? Well, first of all, he that walketh uprightly. Now the word means blameless, complete. The word twice is translated once in Deuteronomy 18 and verse 13. God commands his people to be perfect before him. That's in the Old Testament. Deuteronomy 18 and verse 13. He wants us to be perfect. Well, the word perfect is the same word as uprightly here. The same Hebrew word is translated uprightly. It's translated perfect. He told Abraham that he wanted him to be perfect all the days of his life in Genesis chapter Seventeen in verse one, use the word perfect. So we have a picture here of a life that is inclined and in finding and experiencing holiness, a life in which all the loose sins that we tolerate and we allow so much give way to something in us called convictions, An illumination, the lightening of the mind begins to form in you, and the spirit of God takes those words inside of you and uses them to caution you against anything else, to keep you convicted. Just being convicted doesn't mean you make the right choices, does it? You can be convicted all you want to, but you still have to will to do what's right. Isn't that right? You believe that, don't you? Of course you do. So the purpose of conviction is to change my life. But conviction will never change your life unless you believe it and so forth. So this word has to do with a person who is living right, who is being perfect and upright and sincere. This is what an upright man is. I mean, I don't know how many other ways you can describe he that walketh uprightly. You just don't live like you used to live. You don't live like the world out there lives. You have enough sense just living in the world to know that that's wrong. Even unsaved people know that the way they live is wrong. They will tell you, I'm lost and I'm not going to heaven because they know the way they live is wrong. So the thing that happens is that you begin to see the new and living way that God has for you to live. You begin to make that as a choice in your life. You're making the right choice. You begin to live right. And your walk testifies to the fact that God is Lord, controller, motivator of your life. Now, second thing he said in the same verse one, he said, he worketh righteousness, which simply means you begin to do what's right. Now, what's right isn't measured by how many people think it's right. The standard for righteousness and the standard of righteousness in this world and in this life is God. If it's not right by him, it's not right. Now, there is a way that seems right, and there's one on every corner of the world. There are multitudes and multitudes in this world of Christian assemblies. They call themselves Christian, and they try, and they're doing what they think is right, and they read the Bible, all of that. Proverbs says twice, 15 and, and I think 17. He says, there is a way that seemeth right unto man. Okay? There are a lot of religious people who read the Bible, and they see what it says. And a thorough, closer investigation, they begin to think this way. You know what? I don't know how many people in the church can receive that. That's pretty hard. I don't know anybody that lives like that. Now, if I preach that, that we must live this way, I'm going to upset a lot of people. So I'm going to have to find another way to say something similar to that so that it's not so it's not so, you know, narrow. And so man begins to reinterpret what the Scripture says, begins to give us a different slant, what they call it today, spin, a different spin on what the Bible says. But because a man is educated and well-versed, people buy into what he's saying because, you know, he just sounds right to me. They don't know if he's right or not, but they trust him. So he gives them a different way of doing things, and there's this, you've got a Baptist way, a Methodist way, a Presbyterian way, a Church of God way, a Catholic, Episcopalian, you've got Lutheran. You've got all different kinds of churches with different kinds of creeds or doctrines and different kinds of ideas, and they can't be right. All I'm saying is what I'm saying. Everybody cannot disagree with each other and be right. Christianity is not like a candy store. You get to pick which jar you like the best. It isn't like that. It has become like that because there is a way that seems right unto man, and the end of those ways, the Bible says, and the end of that way is a way of death. It leads you where you don't want to go. And we argue with that. We'll debate that. We'll fight that. write books about it. Oh, we would have a feud, Hatfield-McCoy feud over such a statement that you mean to tell me that just because it's not the way God wants it to be that it's not right, and I would say you're right. It isn't right. If it's not the way he says, then it's not right. We have to examine ourselves all the time. You do and I do. And God help us if we're afraid to say it, and God help us if we're afraid to believe it we can't base Christianity on how many people come and hear it. If that's true, Jesus was quite a miserable failure. What he you have? 12 at the end. It's gotta be something deeper than that. It has to be something. We are willing to live the way he says, because the way he says is the right way. He has made into us righteousness. And therefore we can tell if what's right or what's wrong by whether or not it agrees with what he said. But the man who's going to dwell with the Lord and have fellowship with the Lord, the Bible says, he's going to work righteousness. Now, third thing he says in verse 2, he speaketh truth in his heart. Or say it like this here. Because we are Christians, we no longer mislead, deceive, or distort what God has said to save our necks or to save our jobs. We refuse to lie, for example. We won't tell a, an untruth. We can't do that because how can you speak truth if you lie? Well, my job requires me on occasion to not tell the truth. You need to get another job. But I'm a secretary. The boss sometimes tells me to tell them that I'm not here. And she says, I can't do that because you're right in front of me. So, see, people think that you're for sale, that we're all for sale, that for enough money you'll do whatever you're told to do. That the world thinks like that. You can buy anybody with enough money, and they'll give up anything to get money, except for Christians. Christians aren't like that, are they? Amen. It's okay to say amen. We won't do that because we are called to speak the truth. We are called to speak the truth from our hearts. We're not to be two-faced. We're not to say one thing to you and then say something else to somebody else because we're Christians. Christians don't do that. We don't mislead people. I don't care if to sell a product, if I have to give some misleading information to sell it, then I need to get another job. I need to find some other occupation because I've just did something that the Bible says I should not do, and that's not right. And we say that's not right, We meaning that's not a righteous thing that you did. Well, everybody does it, then they're all wrong. Everybody's wrong. I don't care who's doing it. You know, our kids, just growing up, you say, well, so everybody gets to do it. Everybody goes, and you know, all of us as parents have heard that from growing teenagers. Well, everybody gets to do it. Everybody goes there. And, of course, I can't give you the answers now. I gave them because, you know, my age. We just tell them, well, I don't care who is. I told one of them once, I said, I'm not telling you that you can't do it because I don't want you to have any fun. In my estimation, and I have to give an account for what I allow you to do and what I permit you to do. In my judgment as your father, I don't think it's a good thing for you to go where you want to go or be with the crowd you want to be with or hang around that kind of a crowd. Because as I grew up, that was the kind of crowd that trouble usually came from. I don't think it'd be good for you. So, this is my call. But see, I'm speaking the truth. I wasn't just trying to make him have a hard time or her. Or just, I'm just speaking the truth. Put your finger and go to Psalm 101. Psalm 101 in verse 7. If you use deceit, if you don't tell the truth, if you mislead people just in your casual conversations, you don't exactly tell the truth. You know, it wasn't exactly like that. Listen to this brother or sister verse 7 psalm 101 verse 7 he that worketh deceit shall not what if you're deceitful how can you dwell in the house of god would you not be disqualified but you wouldn't really know it because there's so many christians who are deceitful They will tell you one thing, they'll tell somebody else something else. They say things to you to court your favor, hi, brother, and then they go somewhere else and say, because they're two-faced and deceitful. I've been around this my whole Christian life. I've done it myself. Everybody that has is wrong, but it's so easy to do. We see people we think are important or there's some advantage for me to know this person, and so you kind of tend to say whatever you think they want to hear. I have found that this... Time in my life, the people that I have most respect for are the people who are most honest. They don't always tell me what I want to hear or say things to me. You know, like I guess I needed the son in laws that the Lord gave me, but they seem to lay into me every time. You know, I think, well, I need that. Amen. I guess I need that. Amen. But I respect that. I do. I respect that. Sometimes people think you're somebody and they want to just sort of woo around you. And You know sometimes, you sense it. I don't know if I believe that. You believe you are sincere or not. But when a person just treats you as a human being, and one Christian to another Christian, and doesn't try to court your favor, take advantage of you or do anything like that, but speaks the truth, you seem to have a lot of respect for that person. But he says... Psalm 101, verse 7, He that worketh a seed shall not dwell in my house. He that telleth lies shall not tarry in my sight. I don't know how many of you tell lies, stretch the truth, tell it wrong. I don't know. But you disqualify yourself from having a relationship with God, not from going to church, not from thinking you're all right. Because if you tell a lie, you don't feel something right away, go, oh, I'm out, I'm out. Life is usual. And the more you lie, the more you sear your conscience. The more you sear your conscience, the less you repent. The less you repent, the more you stay in your sin. It becomes a danger zone because you become indifferent, casual, blah, you know. And this shouldn't happen in the church, but it does. It does happen. If, If a man lies to me, let me ask you a question. If anybody lied to you, how could you trust them? Have you ever caught a friend of yours in a lie? Caught him in a lie, have you? I know you have. It made you feel different about that person. Well, in the church, it should never be. We should be able to believe what we say to each other. And if somebody has a concern about your life, they have a concern in the church about something about you, and they come to you and they speak the truth to you in love, should you not receive it? We get wired up and somebody speaks the truth. Anyway, those are going to have a relationship with God and dwell with God. He says are those that speak the truth in their heart. Also in verse 3, number 4 here, he that backbiteth not with his tongue. Now I could write a book on that. I have met, I think I have heard professionals People that were good at this, really good at it, backbiting. I would probably estimate that most everybody in here has done it once. We've said something about people we shouldn't have said something about. or We have reinterpreted what somebody told us to somebody else and made the person we heard the story about put them in a bad light with somebody else. There's nothing Christian about that. You know, I thank God, nobody's ever talked about me. I mean, I, I have escaped that all these years of ever being talked about. But I know that some of you've been talked about. I have been talked about. But I think some of it I deserve. But anyway, backbiting, tailbearing, gossip and slander are never right, never acceptable to God. They're all bad and they're all sins. If you can't say something good, say nothing. Because one of the things that God specifically says here is that he that backbiteth not with his tongue. Listen to what the book of James says. Chapter 1 of James, verse 26. He said, about a man who is religious and bridleth not his tongue, this man's religion is vain. If any man among you seem to be religious and bridleth not his tongue, that is, is not in control of his words. You don't just blurt things out. You choose to blurt things out. You can't just go around gossiping about people all the time and say, I can't help it. My tongue's on fire. Yes, you can help it. You made a moral and ethical decision when you opened your mouth to discuss somebody else you should not discuss. You chose to do that as an act of your will. You're a willing partner to the destruction of somebody's character. You're part of it. And when you talk about it and you begin to defame or mislead other people or try to convince other people that somebody is bad. Instead of going to a person, then you're a part of the destruction of a man's character. Some people always, when you tell that story about somebody, they only and always will see that person the way you told them. Now, they don't know that person. They don't know if that person's right or wrong, but they heard what you said, and therefore, they take you at your word. And their mind is marked with words that came out of your mouth, and they stay like that. There are people who shy away from you because they heard you were, and then they hear some story about your church you go to. You know... (laughs) I heard, what, two weeks ago somebody saw a, a snake skin in the back here. I don't know how it got in this old building. Oh, can you imagine? They've got snakes in that church. Can you imagine? Now, you laugh. You laugh. But now, what if somebody was told, you know what? Don't you tell anybody I said this. This is the way you do this. <laughs> don't, don't. Don't tell anybody. I said, okay. But they they got snakes down in that church, which means they play with them, they handle them, and they yell and scream and jerk and do all of that with the snake. Ah, you know. And the person that you're told that to, they will repeat that. Man, I heard one today. And so when somebody points you out somewhere and they see you, that's the preacher of that church. You know what they picture you as? (laughs) (laughs) As one of these... uh, serpent grippers (laughs) and you know they will never know the difference for the rest of their life it doesn't matter because they're not going to be around you. but they always have this picture of you and hopefully somewhere along the line they'll get at least be around you enough to know that you're not like that and feel ashamed of themselves for believing that but they believe that because you said that let me tell you something we have to come to the place in our Christian life, we here, where we're leaving everybody else alone. I don't care what church they go to, who they are, what their creeds or doctrines are. I will tell you now, I can't agree with everybody, but there's, everybody believes something I can agree with. But uh, my heart is here. This is where I belong, and this is where my efforts are. And if they want to go somewhere else, that's their business. You know, there was a time back 20 years ago... The old gossip line was hot. I mean, it would take more than a smartphone to keep up with what it used to be in those days, buddy. It was juicy all the time. Somebody was failing all the time. And how, oh, you know who failed? Guess who failed this week? Yes, they failed. And we kind of spread that stuff and then just sit around and say, well, isn't that awful? Never prayed. Never took time to pray about it. Never was bothered by people's failures and faults. We just sort of laughed about it. You heard what? Oh, no. I don't think God approves of such things. I don't think criticism is good. I don't think being a charismatic cannibal is good either. I don't think biting and devouring one another is good. Do you? Number five. In verse 3. Nor doeth evil to his neighbor. Now, doeth evil to his neighbor would be to your neighbor, your friend, maybe your neighbor next door, could be anybody. You don't do anything harmful or hurtful to anybody. You consider other people before yourself. Isn't that right? Well, think about it. Is it right for me to treat you above myself? I don't care if my neighbor next door is hard to get along with, aggravating and difficult. It is not my call in life to see how much more aggravation I can add to their life. But my call as a Christian is to be a maker of peace and to spread joy and cheer wherever I go and to not do evil to my neighbor. Remember the great verse in Matthew 7 that Jesus taught? He said, do unto others as you would have others do unto you. Do unto others. That would cover everything. Would you want somebody talking about you? How many of you like to be talked about? One, two, three, four. Okay, none of you. Well, then don't talk about other people. You're going to have a party in your backyard and play. This is the day, as loud as you can, so everybody can hear it. And your neighbor asks you to turn that down because they're trying to go to bed at 10 o'clock. A country, country, they're trying to go to bed at at 9:30, 10 o'clock, and your noise over here is keeping us awake. Would you turn it down? And all your friends say, "We're just getting into all of this." I'd say, you need to turn it down and say, you know, we're Christians. We're not here to aggravate people. I'm not here to aggravate anybody, Muslims or anybody. We're here to seek first the kingdom of God and, from my side, to make disciples. That's what we do. We're not here to change the world. not here to make the world a better place to live. That's not our goal. We're not here to see if we can get somebody elected president beside the ones we have or in the Congress. That's not our goal. Our goal is to become disciples of Jesus, to teach that, insist on that, and go over it again and again and again, and demand it, that God made that commandment. Go into all the world and what? Make disciples, teaching them all things that I have commanded you. Don't say it real loud. Teach them to observe all things that I have commanded you. Would you look, just hold your finger there, and go to Galatians chapter 5 and verse 14, then we'll move on to the next one. Galatians 5 and verse 14. This is also found in Romans 13. Let me read Galatians 5 and verse 14. For all the law is fulfilled in one word, even this, you should love your neighbor as yourself. To love your neighbor as yourself is to consider your neighbor as you would have your neighbor consider you. To do for your neighbor what you would have your neighbor do for you. To don't do to your neighbor what you wouldn't want your neighbor to do to you. That's what the whole law was about, was a regulation of human behavior as God would have it. The whole law, everything about it, how we relate to each other, how we relate to this earth how we relate to God, how we relate to religion. It's all in the law. The whole message of the law was love your neighbor as yourself. The first law was to love God with all your heart and all your soul and all your might, and the second is likened to it. Romans 13, love your neighbor as yourself. On these two laws hang all the law and the prophets. It's as simple as that, so you have to teach that. So not only is our devotion to God, but we spend the rest of our lives as Christians learning how to love and relate to each other. So much of Christianity is, well, i got mine. I go to church. I don't know about you. It's kind of like in 1 Corinthians. You've got a group here, a group here, a group here, and a group here. Each little group has got its own, and they're not really concerned about anybody else. That's not Christianity. Paul said, that's not Right? I mean, we're here as ambassadors of God, representatives of a coming kingdom, right. of a king who will soon establish his kingdom on this earth. We're his people. Our light must so shine that others will see our baptismal certificates as we have them bronzed and made small. We put them on a little keychain around your neck, and they'll say, Oh, my, you're holy. No, our light has to shine, and which means that the evidence of God in your life is manifesting itself. That's who we are. That's what we do. This is what we devote ourselves to doing, to teaching it and to receiving it. Next, verse 3 again, he says, "...nor taketh up a reproach against his neighbor." That is, he would not receive a reproach against his neighbor. Sound kind of like backbiting. I wonder how much God is going to talk to us about our tongue. Lying, speaking truth, not being false, not taking up a reproach against the neighbor, not joining in in the taunting term in the, in the Old Testament could be used as a term by which you taunt your enemy. Today, it'd kind of be in an amusing way, like trash-talking somebody. You know, you're you're trying to put people down. It's a put-down. Looking down on people. Not necessarily slandering them, but face-to-face. It's a put-down. Taking up a reproach against your neighbor. Listen to what in Barnes's notes. I copied this down. I thought this was good. He said... There are large classes of persons of whom nothing is more acceptable than reproachful accusations of others and who embrace no reports more readily than they do those which impute bad conduct or bad motives to them. And that is true. They love to hear stuff. They love to hear bad stuff. The Bible says you won't do that. You won't do that. When they start talking that way, you have to say, listen, it's best I don't hear this. Just the other day, somebody said to me, man, have you heard the latest? And I remember saying, is it good or bad? That's good. Okay, let me hear it. Because I can tell you this, when I hear anything bad about anybody, you or them or that, it's hard to get rid of it. It's hard to really get rid of that stuff. It lingers in there like a festering thing. And we are the ones who are bringing it about the fact that we say all of this. Number seven, Psalm 15, verse 4, in whose eyes a vile person is contemned. Now, contemned in other translations would be rejected or despised. I don't like the word despised because something could be despicable, I suppose, but despised has to do with hate. We can loathe sin. There are things we should hate. Amen? There are things that God hates. I mean, everybody thinks that God is incapable of hate. No, he is capable of hate. In fact, as he mentions a number of things in the Scripture that he does hate. I mean, he hates backbiting, doesn't he? We'll get to that shortly. Again, I'm, I'm sure we're going to talk about it again. And he said, whose eyes a vile person is contemned, it has to do with vile, mean, uncouth, unrefined, if I could say it just in this hour, worldly people that you see making a fool of themselves Then their language, their music. I don't think that any time in history, I don't think Sodom and Gomorrah would have had the filthy music then that they have today. I don't. In fact, if there's a rap song on in a car and you got kids in one of those loudspeaker cars and the seats all the way back and you see a head in the front seat looking through the steering wheel, you know, and there's this wombaty boombaty wombaty boom, you know, I get a gonna get a little One day I was in the dry cleaners, parked on the street, car behind me, and that thing was beating the doors on my car. And I went inside, and while I was in there, I heard two or three bad words. And I think, how can you be so gross? to sit there in public without shame and broadcast that nasty stuff on your old dirty-looking car so everybody has to listen to it. I told you one day at the stoplight, I thought would do it once. One of those cars, you know, lights, the windows were down, and it was that boomity-boomity-boom. So I don't know what Christians says. The only one I knew was 88.5, but that might be as bad as what I was hearing. So there's a disc in there. You get a disc, and then you turn that thing up. You know, I'm sitting there, and I said, we're having a contest right here in the street. But then I got to thinking, he's making me like him. Man, it ain't going to work. So I turned mine down and just rolled my windows up. I don't want that. I don't want to be a vile person. But a vile person is not a nice person. It's not a good person. You'd be a dishonest, unclean Honry, worldly, vulgar, nasty person, and in the eyes of a Christian, these are not who we want our kids to dress like, or wear their jerseys. I remember a golf player, everybody would know his name, one day on a big match, and this guy was winning, he was like 80 strokes ahead, not really, not really. But he certainly wasn't behind. He wasn't suffering his score. And he missed a shot by a little bit. And right there on national TV, I heard the Lord's name in frustration. And I thought, is that who I'm looking forward to watching? Is that what I want to enjoy myself with him? You know, listen to watching him and bypassing all of his vulgarities and his honoriness and, and promote him? You say, well, that's probably true with most athletes if you knew them. All. Well, I don't want to know them. I knew one real well, and he was good, my brother. But I didn't know all the others. But the Bible says for us as Christians, we make a distinction between what is good and okay and what isn't good and what's not okay. And for us who have a relationship with God and esteem it and the value that, we just separate ourselves from these kind of people. Let me show you a real good example. Turn to 2 Kings 3 and verse 14. Now, in 2 Kings here, Jehoshaphat is with Ahab, and there's another guy involved, and he shouldn't have been with Ahab. Ahab was not a good man. But he said, help me go fight this guy. And Jehoshaphat says, what I got is yours. My horses are yours. We're with you. And then they went out to battle and decided they need to ask God for direction. But there wasn't anybody up in Israel or Ahab's kingdom that was fit to ask. So Jehoshaphat said, "Uh, you got a prophet around here that we can talk? And somebody said, well, how about Elisha? Yeah, let's go find him. So they went to Elisha's place. Now, here's these kings. And you would think Elisha come out and say, yes, sir, yes, sir. What can I do for y'all? Elisha, I like him. And he said this to these kings, verse 14. And Elisha said unto the king of Israel, As the Lord of hosts liveth before whom I stand, surely were it not that I regard the presence of Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, I would not look towards you or see you. Whoa, you like it? Oh, Elisha, aren't you afraid they'll cut your head off? I've got to cut anything off unless the Lord lets them. If he lets these people cut my head off, I'm going to heaven. He told Ahab, let me tell you something. You want something from me? If it was not for the fact that I regard Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, his presence here, I wouldn't even look at you. It's pretty strong. Remember the book of Esther? You have to turn to chapter 5 somewhere. Mordecai and Haman, you remember that? And Haman got to go ahead. He's going to have a party. He thought it was going to be a party. It was a party too. It was his last one. You know, he was exalted. Haman was, and he had on all the right stuff, and everybody would see him come down the street. and And he went past Mordecai. Mordecai just did this. And oh, Haman, Haman, had what we call down here in Kentucky a conniption fit. He hated the man because he wouldn't look at him and admire him and look up to him. But the Bible says that those that have a relationship to God, in this relationship something is happening to my judgment. I'm no longer interested in all of these fun, foolish things as much as substantial and spiritual things. And he said, I I don't care about this other stuff anymore. I don't care who they are. Oh, this guy's famous. So? So is Jesus. This verse tells us that that we are not to be those people that promote vile people. We reject them. That's what the Hebrew word means. It means to reject. Back in Psalm 15, if you'll go back there again to verse 8. I mentioned this a, a while ago. He says, he honors them that fear the Lord. We may not agree on everything. We may be in different places, maybe a different way of approaching the Lord. But I am sure there's some things that we do agree on. Would you agree? I may disagree with you on some things. You may disagree with me on some things. But I'm sure some of the more essential things, we do agree. And anybody who in his agreement with God has a respect for God in which he fears the Lord and who stands in awe and reverence toward God. Seen in his life and his choices is to be honored by all of us. Some people say, oh, Billy Graham. Let me tell you something. I've never walked in his shoes. I don't know that I could. I do believe that God in that man's life has led him to lead who knows. How many people, not true. In Luke 10, he was supposed to. 17, he was supposed to. That's what he was called to do. It was the power of God that gave him that. But I am not the one who's going to stand and deliver a tirade against somebody because in some particular point of doctrine, we don't agree. Now, if he want to run with me, we're going to fellowship and all of that and run together, we'll have to talk. Because how can two walk together, not know each other and be friends, but how can two walk together unless they be agreed? But there's a right way of dealing with things, and you've seen the wrong way in the world. Next one says, number nine says, he that sweareth to his own hurt and changeth not. Let me read from another translation, that last part. Well, it says, he who keeps an oath even when it hurts and doesn't change. I think sometimes we commit ourselves to do things that we realize,, hey, I shouldn't have done that. Uh, I don't think that's good. I don't think that's a good thing to do. Or we told somebody we would buy a, something from somebody, and we realized later that was too much. Did you tell them you would buy it? Then you buy it. Did you tell them you would do it? Then you do it. You're a Christian. Ah, I ain't going to do that. No, man, I was I was wrong about that. That's why the Bible said you need to set a watch before your mouth and guard the door of your lips. You remember a man named Jephthah in Judges 11? He made a vow once that if God would help him win this battle, then the first thing that came out of his house to greet him when he came home, he would sacrifice a burnt offering to the Lord. And the battle was over. He won the first thing. When he came home, his daughter came out to meet him. And he said, Alas, my daughter, and... This is what she said to him. My father, if thou hast opened thy mouth unto the Lord, then do to me according to that which hath proceeded out of thy mouth. Wow. Why didn't he change his mind? You know what the Lord says about his word? He said, I am the Lord. I change not. If he has said it, he will do it. If he has spoken." it, He will make it good. It's in Ecclesiastes 5.5, be not rash with your mouth. Be careful what you say. God will hold you to your words. When you said to the Lord, Lord, I give you my life, then he took you at your word. It's not yours to take back. It's his, isn't it? If we're Christian, do we not belong to him? Did we not give him our life and our will and our time? Does it not all belong to him? Then, when we get bored with what we think he's saying and we draw back and take things back, have we not gone back on our word? Come on. How easy it is to what we call backslide, how easy it is to start well and not finish. How easy it is to get away from God and then instead of being stable and steadfast, look back the last 20 years, flopping and flopping and flopping and this way and that way and in and out, up and down, quit and gone. People in the past that you would have never thought would ever back away from some hard things they said have already quit, got rid of their wives, got them a new one, gone a different direction. Like Jeremiah 5 says at the very end of Jeremiah 5, what will you do in the end? What will you do when it's over? When the call from God comes and it's your turn to come forward, when life is ended for you, what will you do then? Your whole memory, your whole life will go by, I'm sure. I'm sure it'll all go by and you'll see everything that you had opportunity to do and everything you could have done, the way you could have changed If you give your word, you keep it. One translation says, and they keep their promises no matter what the cost. I made a deal with a car dealer up in Dayton, Ohio once, Joe Marks, my friend. We were talking too many numbers and I made a deal that I would come back and buy a car for a certain price. I was thinking of something else. And when I got home, I thought, whoa, I just paid his rent for the rest of the year so I went back up there, and I said, well, he said, you know, that was too much, that price you gave me. I said, oh, I know it now, yeah, but I told you I would. He said, no, I don't want you to do that. And I was willing to. I would have cried all the way home, wouldn't have enjoyed the car, but I, I would have done it. I really would have done it, but he said, no, I don't want you to do that. You don't have to do that. Number 10 in the fifth verse simply says, he that putteth not out his money... To usury. Usury is interest. And there's so much in the Bible about one of the reasons that I have found in my life I don't have that much to invest. My parents died, they gave you a little something, and of course that went into a new car. But people say, Oh, you ought to invest that. You ought to put that in the bank and draw interest. You could get your CDs. And then I read this one day while I'm alone and I thought. I don't want to give my money to one of the world's institutions so they can, in turn, lend it to somebody else and collect interest from those people so they can make money off of their weakness or their lack. I don't think I want to be a party to that. Somebody said, so what do you do with your money? It wasn't hard to do anything with it. Here and here and here, you spend it. It ain't like you got so much money that you don't know what to do with it. That's never been a real serious problem. But interest, collection of interest, that's like buying a house for $100,000. And over a 30-year period of time at a certain interest rate, you pay $300,000. I don't think that's right. But that's the way banks make money. That's one of the systems of this world and how they function and how they operate, and every time you borrow money from them, they hold you not only to pay that back, but for the privilege of borrowing it, they charge you a certain fee. They call it interest or usury. Now, you read in Ezekiel 18, there's three verses in Ezekiel 18 and one also in Ezekiel chapter 22 that says specifically that a righteous man does not put his money out to usury. Now, it does say you can charge interest to a foreigner, but not to your own people. But we don't have a foreigner own people situation today like they did then. And I think it's best, personally, leave it alone, just to not have to do it. I think it's unlawful interest. I think it's a way of charging a penalty. It's penalizing people financially for what they don't have in order to get what they want. And while it's done, and it'll never stop being done, I just something I don't want to be a part of. If I can't pay for it, I don't buy it. That's just the way I do it. Not that that makes it right, that's just the way you do it. Finally, verse five, he says, Nor taketh reward against the innocent. You can talk about courtrooms and lawyers and suits, lawsuits, and people that lie about an accident in order to collect insurance off of somebody, somebody who's innocent, not rich or poor, but just an innocent party. How many of you know an insurance company could be innocent? I know, I know, but they could be innocent. They didn't know that that tree really didn't fall on your car. You parked your car under the tree and saw the limb <laughs> because you wanted to get. Now, the, the insurance company was innocent. They probably paid you, it, but you don't do that if you're a Christian. And you certainly don't gang up on anybody to take advantage of them because you're a Christian. Now, how does that last verse end in chapter 15, that last part of it? He that doeth these things shall never be moved. Wouldn't that be a wonderful person to be a pastor to? The unmovable saints of SCA. Wouldn't that be good? So let's pray this tonight as we go, that God will awaken us from whatever lethargic, dull, tepid situation we might be in, that he would awaken us, alert us, and bring us to a place where he gets our full attention and our heart. Amen. Heavenly Father, in the name of Jesus, I ask you to bless the words of your book to our hearts I pray Lord that nobody will believe it because I said it but they would believe what they see in the word that you show them that we would be believing what you said grant us that alertness that Christians have that conviction that we have when things aren't right that desire that we have that keeps us on the straight and narrow give us that grant us that Lord All of this tonight we ask you for, we receive in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.